When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode is part of music royalty in this country. He was a co-founder and key member of legendary Aussie band In Excess. He co-wrote so many of the group's biggest hits. He's now an established solo artist these days uh, with a new album that has just been released. And once upon a time he and his family called Perth home. So there's stacks to get to, uh, but before we do that, I better say uh, hello and welcome. It's my great pleasure to welcome Andrew Farris. How are you, Andrew? Yeah, I'm good, Tim. How are you, mate? Yeah, going very well. Thank you very much. You've got a new album out. Congratulations on that. What can you tell us about it quickly? Thank you. Uh, well, it's uh, got 12 tracks and it's uh, interesting how I arrived at having uh, a solo album and and a lot of people have, you know, asked me why has it taken me so long. Well, yeah, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I beat you to it. Yeah. Well, it was because, uh, you know, as you know, I've always been a songwriter, and people who are familiar with my career would know that. Um, and I had been re-recording uh, some of my demos and recordings of my songs. I was happy with the songs that I'd written either by myself or co-written with others, but I just wasn't sure that the recordings were good enough, you know, mm -hmm. to play to other people. So I started re-recording them. And I was singing them because I was the closest singer around, you see. And as I'm doing all this, especially as I was working out of Nashville at the time, my wife Marlena uh, is from Dayton in Ohio in the US. And it's about five and a half hours drive from Dayton down to Nashville. And so I'd been working there professionally before in Nashville, but Marlena was on this particular trip with me. And uh, we decided to, um, you know, go down and do some horse riding on the Mexican border. And up to that point, I didn't really think I was making an album. I was just re-recording songs so that they were better quality to play to people. You know, and pitch them to other artists, and that's what I do as a songwriter, amongst other things. So uh, when I got there, uh, I, we were on the Mexican border where Arizona meets New Mexico mm -hmm. and what they call the Chiricahua Mountains. And in this area, you had the history, like tumultuous history of the Apache Indians. You had, uh, you know, Geronimo and Cochise, and then you had Apache Pass with the U.S. Cavalry. And across the border, of course, you'd have the Mexicans. And in the old days, the Mexican Army. And then up the, up the road, not too far from where we were riding, uh, it was uh, Tombstone with the outlaws and the cowboys and the settlers trying to mm. make a life out of all of this. Well, up to that point, you know, even though I live on a farm, I have livestock, including horses, and I have uh, cattle. So I'm a cowboy in a way anyway, mm. even though I'm probably not known as one. That's something I've done for 30 years, actually, is mm -hmm. raise cattle. And um, so we rode horses for six hours a day, six days in a row, Marlena and I. Wow. And we 
went out with an old cowboy guy called Craig Lawson, who sadly passed away. And we went out with him and his wife, Tam. Great people. Well, Craig, I didn't see what was coming. I got an education in this area, you see, along the Mexican border. And it's quite a, a wilderness area still. Like, even though you would have thought the U.S. being a very large population and as big a country as it is, it was surprisingly barren down there. And I was riding through these canyons, as they call them, and you could still see stagecoach routes. You know, you could actually still see abandoned forts uh, that we visited by horseback, old abandoned silver mines, you know, and there's literally still uh, bullets and things lying around on the ground in certain places. And it suddenly occurred to me, I thought, you know, this, I, this could be 100 years ago. The point is, is that when I got back to Nashville, and I'm very aware of the whole uh, chart success thing. It's important in every uh, music genre. And I've been working in the country music genre now. And I suddenly recognized from my days within excess, it's exactly sort of similar thing where you get this competitive thing going on with people where they want chart hits. And what happened to me was I was quite moved emotionally at some of the stories and, and, and the sad things I saw when I was there. Um, it's a beautiful area. Like the landscape is beautiful, but the history is tumultuous. And, you know, we, we'd th- see things like uh, tombstones with uh, you know, John Amaro's grandson and that sort of thing. Well, anyway, you know, it was back in Nashville. The first song I wrote of what would become my album was Apache Pass. And I wrote it with a, another co-writer in Nashville, uh, a famous country writer called uh, Frank Myers, and I co-wrote this song together. And that's where my album started, basically. That's how I ended up writing an album. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's quite yeah. a story. What you're describing, it almost sounds like a movie set you've stumbled upon here. Well, it's funny you should mention that because up to that point, I always thought of all this cowboy history and, the, you know, indigenous culture and the Indian people in America as a kind of a just a Hollywood yeah. fantasy or something. But it's a story you... that we've been told many times. Yeah, Exactly. And everyone keeps repeating it. Mm. But when you actually go write it and look at it and see it, it's gritty and dusty and yeah. it, it's, you know, and it's, it's, and it can be freezing. Like one day we rode our horses around the bottom of a, I think it's Cocachino National Park. And we rode right up the top. And by the time we got the top, it was a blizzard. Wow. And my wife, Marley, and I both tried struggling to stay warm, you know, with, with snow flying sleet at us. And then you sort of think, well, what was life like for these people 100 years ago when they had no electricity? Yeah. You know? Like if you pull the plug out of the modern world we live in right now, what would work anymore, right? Not much. Right. And so all these things, I'm a songwriter, and all these things hit me, and I thought I'd... When I got back to Nashville, I was on fire and I said to a lot of the other writers, including I wrote by myself for my album as well, just a little, my little old lonesome, and I started to see suddenly how I could stylize everything where all the lyrics on my album, all the videos, all the artwork, everything would all relate to this sort of mm. concept of not, not so much the old world, uh, old west exactly. It's more Americana. I'll use Australiana as well because I wrote a song called With the Kelly Gang about, uh, you know, and it's the same era, you yep. see. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. that's when I thought, I think I can do this now. I think I can make an album. And you did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> we might uh, actually take a pause right now then, Andrew, and hear a little snippet from the first single uh, from your self-titled new album. This one's called Come Midnight. You toss and you turn it, and things just don't go Somebody, you can call somebody 
Just a little taste there. We'll play your uh, latest single a little bit later, Andrew. F for those who haven't been following your life story, you know, intimately since you sort of wrapped things up within excess, they, they might see you now, particularly, you know, some of the, uh, like the album cover shots of you and go, wow, Andrew's a full gunslinging cowboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they think, oh, are you playing a character role here? But it, it seems like, you know, this, this is you. Yeah, well, I actually live uh, on a block of dirt seven hours inland in New South Wales and northwest uh, near a, a mountain called Mount Caputar. It's one of the highest areas along. It's a beautiful mountain range, actually. And yeah, and I, I yeah, I've, I, it's been a you know professional farm I've had for quite a few years, and uh, food is life. You know, food's important to us, um, and it's not just me wearing a ten-gallon hat. It's mm. sort of I, I live outdoors with with people who do these sorts of things. And that's where I really felt the connection for me in the older times was where country music really came from. It was, you, you, they bought, the Europeans, for example, bought classical instruments like violins and, you know, say a, an old style acoustic guitar with a drum. You put them together, they'd become a banjo. They would have taken flutes with them and all these sort of mm. instruments. And then the early folk music then became country music. And we led us to where we are today. And so my journey was not just a physical one, it had to do with horses and hats. It had to do with me thinking about the real roots of country music and how I, what part I could play in it. Yeah. And the, and the little stories, obviously you're affected by those cowboy type stories from, you know, the, the adventures you've just described uh, in yeah, the southern I, I, US into, into Mexico. So you're obviously drawn <laughs> to those narratives. Well, absolutely. I mean, even on the property that I, I live on is a fairly old historical run in the old days in Australian history. And there's a famous story of, 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 uh, that was told to me by the, one of the elder people of the family, the pioneer family, of a lady who um, was worried about her daughter. She was about nine. And this is in the years before electricity and, and even before the railway came through uh, our area. And she, so she rode off into the local town, which is about 20 miles away, to find out the, do the doctor had just ridden off half an hour before to ride 50 miles away. And, of course, the little wow. girl died. And she had to bring all the way back on a horse. And it really hits home to you, even though we whinge and complain about something, in the th you know, some of the things we have to put up with in this era. Yeah. You know, we really are very fortunate to live in the times we live in. I think some of those people lived it really hard. Oh, you know? absolutely. Uh, Andrew, we need to take a quick break. No but after that, we're going to go right back to the start and uh, I'll hear all about your uh, your early years growing up here in Little yeah. Old Perth. Great, mate. Good. Good. So hopefully some of those memories are still clear in your mind, Andrew. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll, tell, more right I'll tell more positive stories yeah, for you. Please yeah. do. All right, no Andrew Farris, uh, co-founder yeah. of legendary band In Excess and now... Uh, an established uh, singer-songwriter, having just released a new album. It's our special guest in Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. 
Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My special guest is Andrew Charles Farris, born on the 27th of March. I won't say the year, Andrew. In uh, Perth, <laughs> Western Australia, Cottesloe, uh, to be specific, uh, the second oldest of four children. Uh, Andrew, what do you remember of, of growing up in Perth? Because obviously, you know, you've gone in then on to form this band in excess, which has just been a, a, a massive global phenomenon. But your early years here in Perth, what are your sort of standout memories? I just feel really fortunate. I had really good parents, really good family and a good community. I grew up over and sort of towards Mount Pleasant and Apple Cross and on the southern side of Perth there. And and uh, But I can remember hot summers. Of course, we didn't have any air conditioning back then. And as Dad used to say to us, you know, you, you all build your houses too big these days. <laughs> but um, And I can remember just those 40-degree those Summers, you know, you just lie virtually with just shorts on in bed with nothing else on you. Yeah. Um, you sweat your way through summer. But then, you know, what a beautiful place, uh, really, Western Australia and Perth, of course. But oh, some amazing memories really there. And um, actually, one of, my first, one of my first memories was as a primary school kid. Um, and I know it's the ABC, all right? But uh, someone came from the ABC and said, look, we'd like someone to read to kids in the outback. Do you have any of your students who might want to do that and can read, you know, well. Yeah. And uh, and the teacher said, yeah, young Andrew here, he, uh, he might want to go and do it. He's a good reader. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, all right, I'll go do that. And the next minute I was sitting reading to kids in the outback in West wow. Australia. And, yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> that was so random really. Yeah. But that, yeah, that was my first sort of media experience when I was a kid. There you go. Um, my first musical experience of, of some significance was my dad – uh, was in the Royal Navy and he married my mum. He was uh, from Western Australia. And um, my father, Dennis, and my mum's name was Jill. But Dad hadn't been back to uh, London for 15 years. And in those years, uh, you didn't fly everywhere. Mm. You took a ship, mm. you know. So he put us three brothers who, who eventually would be part of In Excess, the Farris brothers. Our sister wasn't born yet, our younger sister. Right. And he put us on a ship and took three weeks. We got to London and we went to a variety show. And the first band I ever saw was the Beatles. They walked out and played, right? <laughs> pretty nice <laughs> first experience. <of laughs> I'm music. sitting there as a little kid going, this is pretty good. You know, like, <laughs> this happens to everybody, right? Yeah. You know? And that was right, I think it was even before they went to America. And so then we came home again and... You know, and then I think that pushed a big button for me and my brothers as far as what was that all about. Yeah. And then, you know, the whole thing, the trip, everything. I mean, I've been so seasick in my life. But anyway, so the thing the thing was is that then I learned piano around about nine and um, I taught myself to play guitar by going into my older brother Tim's room and just learning the guitar myself. And then, um, yeah, so I guess the rest is history. And then we moved uh, as a young family, I suppose, over uh, to New South Wales. And I remember the first time I went over the Harbour Bridge, I thought, what's this gigantic structure? Because there was nothing like it in <laughs> Perth, you know. Oh, come on, man, um, we've got the Narrows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Well, actually, they built that big concrete bridge across, isn't it across towards um, the South Perth there? That wasn't there when I was a kid. Oh, the it Narrows was, wasn't there. No, well, that, no, yeah, one of, one of the big bridges, because I, I learned to, yeah, that's what it must be. But I learned to swim in, um, in the Swan River, um, down on deep water, uh, point, uh, the jetty there. And I can remember the big, uh, jellyfish. Oh, they're still there. 
Yeah, I don't know. But the, and, the, and everyone would look at you and go, what's wrong with your son? Just jump in there. I'm like, but it's an enormous jellyfish, you know. Um, but, yeah, I learned to swim and the jellyfish never hurt us. And but I thought I read somewhere some poor bloke was eaten by a shark or something. Yeah, bull recently. shark. Uh, yeah, took a, right. Took a big chunk out of a bloke. Yeah, uh, ouch. In, in the Swan River. Mm, yeah, he's all right. Sea. He mm. he's he's pulled through, but he's got a long mm. road of recovery still ahead of him. But yeah, oddly enough, he um, he used to swim in the ocean and decided to swim more in the river because he wanted to avoid the sharks. But they got him anyway. Um, yeah, but yeah, well. the, the jellyfish are still there. You don't really have to worry about them. Um, so you, you're about twelve when you when you go to Sydney. Um, yep. Apart from the bridge, I mean, it must have been just in terms of the sheer scale of of Sydney compared to to Perth. Was it a culture shock for you? Yeah, I can remember being really overwhelmed by just the size of Sydney. And, of course, it's much bigger now. But then, yeah, I was overwhelmed. And, of course, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as that we didn't know. Whereas, in you know, in Perth in those years, we used to know lots of other people and family or whatever. And then we got to Sydney. We didn't know anybody. So it was a bit surreal at first, too. And, ironically, it was about nine months later after we moved there and I'd gone to primary school for a little while in Sydney and then I met Michael Hutchins who came through from Hong Kong and we I felt like an outsider because I wasn't from Sydney you see I came from Perth yeah and then Michael had come from Hong Kong and he didn't know anyone either and that was part of you know I never finally ever talked about this before I think that was part of the reason that we actually somehow related to each other because we yeah. didn't have that big string of mates that had come mm. through from primary mm. school or whatever you know, um, but yeah, he was in a motorbike. Actually, we didn't talk about music much. Mm. Um, yeah, is it true that you first really properly met and connected with him when you helped him in a fight? He was involved in a fight with well, someone that was, else at school. Where what happened was that's what I was saying that it was in a primary school quadrangle, and we being oh, this is kind of hard to explain, but. Our school wasn't finished yet because in, in the 70s they had lots of building strikes and yeah. petrol strikes and like crazy stuff, right? And so they hadn't physically built our school, but the government had said, no, you have to be in this school uniform and go to a school. So they put us in Kalani Heights High School, which is not where we were supposed to be. The school really didn't want us there. The parents really didn't want us there. And it was terrifying because there was all these older boys, especially dressed in a completely different school uniform. Yeah. It was all, they had all grey uniforms on and we had like a red jumper and blue shorts <laughs> with white socks and black shoes. So we were like target. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> as little kids, you know. And then... But I'd, I'd always played sport my whole life, both AFL and, and, um, and tennis and other, and swam a lot too when I was younger. Yeah. So I didn't feel that intimidated. But when I saw Michael come through the school, Quadrangle, he had a, a King George the Fifth high school uniform on, which was different again. I thought, oh, here we go, you know. And sure enough, some of the older boys sort of walked over to him. And luckily by that time, I sort of had a, felt a bit more confident and I I don't know why, but myself and another mate of mine just walked over and said, leave him alone. That was pretty much the fight, but it wasn't, didn't get that physical, but it could have, you know. Yeah. But we just said, no, you're going to leave him alone. And that was all it was. And they, they did. They walked away. But sometimes bravado <laughs> works, right? Yeah. But, um, yeah, sometimes. Anyway, so, but that was that. And, um, you know, it came close. And But I, I remember vividly that it was a very fortuitous meeting and I, neither of us really thought that much about it. Mm. We were just little schoolmates, you know. Mm. Um, but my other memories I have of, of, of Western Australia, so strong in my mind, um, 
uh, my grandfather, uh, uh, my Australian grandfather, uh, and on my mother's side of my family, uh, he had built a fibrous cement uh, holiday home down towards Dawesville, which is near Mandurah, which is almost a suburb of Perth now. Absolutely is these days, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it wasn't when we were kids. It no. was just a place we went fishing and crabbing, yeah. and yeah. and and just what an what an amazing lifestyle. We were mm. we were very lucky kids. Yeah, mm. Mm. yeah, that's good. Fond memories then. Yeah. Um, Michael, obviously, that you know, it's it's it, it's a it's a very rock and roll way to meet, isn't it? The start of it, what became a beautiful partnership that you guys had. Um, how did he then get drafted into your band? Because I understand <laughs> you already had a band, Doctor Dolphin. Yeah, great name. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So how did that recruitment process go? Yeah, all right. Well, there was no, like, actual, when I think about it, there was no actual auditions or anything. <laughs> I was interested in his interest in motorbikes, right. actually. He was into, in, in, in a, you know, motorbikes. And I used to go around, we used to talk. I didn't know anything about motorbikes. So I used to go around and we used to look at them together and talk about them. And then, um, and then how we actually got talking about music was just a side thing. And he w- he never played an instrument. You see, most people yep. don't know that he was his instrument was his voice, mm. and he wrote lyrics and or poetry when he was a kid. And of course, back then, when you're a kid and you know you weren't people weren't were concerned about poetry. They were concerned about girls and and cars and footy and and you know whatever the important um, things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not poetry. Oh, you've got to be kidding, mate. You know. Um, and, but I, I knew that he was talented in that way. Well, a lot of things happened and eventually we, we, we began to recognise that uh, with me, with my, my high school bands and, and mates that I knew and my brothers and all the rest of it, he became more and more curious about it all. And one day we were sitting there and I said, have you ever tried to sing any of these words you're writing? You know, Because I'd already started to write my own songs. And he said, no, I've never done that. So we started working like that together. And so I never really recruited him. It was just sort of something we fell just into happened. doing. Yep, just yeah. happened, and off you go. Yep. That seems like a uh, poignant moment to uh, leave that hanging in the air as we take a break, and then after that we'll get into what, what became uh, this massive global phenomenon called uh, In Excess. Andrew, so please uh, tell us all about that right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Andrew Farris is our special guest. We'll be back with more very soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, in excess, uh, co-founder, multi-instrumentalist, uh, and established and well-recognised uh, songwriter in Andrew Farris is our special guest. Andrew, you've just sort of talked us through how you first met Michael and how you kind of welcomed him into the band and turned him into a singer. At what point did you realise that you had something truly magical going on? Yeah, well, with my brothers, with Tim and John and, and of course, with uh, Kirk and Gary, yeah, we, we became the Farris brothers. We weren't mm. in excess yet. And we played our first show on 16th of August 1977 uh, on the beaches, the northern beaches in Sydney. And, um, and then uh, my parents, uh, Jill and Dennis, decided to go back to Perth because they preferred Perth to living yep. in the East Coast. Um, and they took my younger brother and my younger sister with them because they still had to legally go to school. Right. And so we thought, well, why don't we go over and play in Perth because, you know, John's such a great drummer and we'll just play around Perth and get some gigs, you know. 
because um, we like working together as that group of people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so we actually moved over to Western Australia after, you know, after going to New South Wales. We moved back over to Western Australia for a year and played up in the mining towns, right up north and down south through the wheat belt wow. and around, around Perth yeah, and all that and played around there as the Farris brothers. And we actually had a residency at um, the uh, Broadway Tavern uh, in Netherlands there. And we had a fancy dress night one night where, you know, we encouraged people to dress up in strange costumes, including us. Yeah. So we had this crazy night. And I, I, I was dressed as a chicken and I walked out <laughs> on stage playing Long Train Running by the Doobie Brothers. Um, you know, it was uh, really cool if they wrote uh, dressed as a chicken. And we had this really crazy night. Yeah, there. But we did, it was a really great year that year, to be honest. It sounds no like a moment that um, we might need to recreate in some form. <laughs> Yeah, I'll do it. I'm up for it. Yeah. I mean, ditch the cowboy for a night and go chicken. Yeah. Well, we're, speaking of animals, we were talking about sharks before, weren't we? We were. Yeah. I think that's how the, the word was invented by putting the S and the F word together. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, um, but um, when you're underwater and, uh, but it was, it was more, um, yeah, that I think we realized then that, you know, they wanted us to play covers, you know, and we were kept trying to, to oh. write our original material. Perth see, was, and a, like, was oh, no. a cover band city, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like, hey, yeah. mate, you can't play your own material around here, you know. Mm. you got to play covers. Play something the audience knows, will you? Come on, you know. Mm. And so we went, uh, okay. Uh, so we, we went over east because they wanted to, you know, they they, they had audiences for people to play their own material. Yep. You know? And yeah. look, we haven't frankly got the time to go through uh, the extraordinary uh, journey that you went on with in excess but I mean you were right at the heart of it obviously as a uh, keyboardist and guitarist uh, vocalist in the band but also um, you know you're responsible for creating these tunes as well you had a, a, an amazing synergy with Michael he mostly put the words down you put the music down um, mm. yeah. how, do you, how do you describe the relationship that you guys had? Mm, extraordinary. And I, I feel the best way I can explain this is, you know, I used to rate our success as a band on chart success and whatever, you know, but I tell you where it really hit home to me is when David Koch championed Never Tear Us Apart for the Port Adelaide football team. Right. And, and I, yeah, and I remember the first time I saw the footage of that stadium of, of footy fans singing a song that I'd been a part of composing. And I, I looked at that and I was really moved emotionally, to be honest with you. I thought this has got nothing to do with pop music or charts or anything. Whatever I or we did has gone into Australian culture. That was a pretty significant moment for me. And then we worked in 52 countries in the end as a mm. band. You know, and I lived in England for nearly five years. Two, was, two of my kids were born there. And my, so I have British family as well as I have an Australian family. And now my wife's American. I have American family too. So... Yeah, I guess uh, uh, bits of this and bits of that, but you know, I, I don't, I, I don't regret anything. I, I love In Excess, an awesome band and a great people to, to work with and you know, and, and to write with and all that sort of stuff. It was awesome. And so many uh, hits that went, you know, into the top ten in the US, which was such a feat, particularly back then. You know, there haven't been too many Aussie bands who who have who have cracked that US top ten. Uh, chart hit, but you did it so many times. What What are the songs that you still listen to, are still moved by, are, are most proud of uh, all these well, years on? I've got to say, really, 
and I'm not making this up. I'm really proud of all of them, but probably, yeah, the the really big hits that we had, you know, in various countries, not just the US. Yeah, that I'm, I have a lot of affection for, including Original Sin that we that we wrote and uh, I wrote with Michael and and um, you know. Uh, but that was an experience where Niall Rogers, who's sort of the king of funk guitar, had come to see us playing in Canada. And he said, I really want to record you guys in New York because I just saw you on MTV. And this is about 1983. So the next minute, was, you know, Michael and I came up with this song and we're standing in the power station recording studio and I was 23. And Niall's saying to me, hey, man, you got a chord chart? And I'm like, how do I do one of those? You know, yeah. so I wrote this thing, scribbled on a piece of paper what my idea of a chord chart was. And I'm staying there holding this chart up for him while he tracked the guitar riff that I wrote. And I'm thinking to myself, this is really surreal. Um, this does, is not supposed to be happening. you know. Yeah. Um, but m- more and more and more things kept happening to us like that as a band. And I, I don't know how to describe it. All I can say is in your lives, when, you know, anyone, listeners who are listening to me, when good things start to happen one after the other, the only thing I can say is you're in the place where you're supposed to be at that mm. time. Mm. Yeah, I and, bet. I, and you yeah, were in many places, many different times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. You, but they were all the right time at, the, at that time. That, that's right. But, yeah. you know, and if, you, if you're doing good things and in a positive way, it's more likely good things and positive things will happen to you. And yet it's so far removed from the life you lead now on your, <laughs> your rural property in, in country New South Wales. I mean, for so many years, you, you must have been living out of suitcases, waking up in a different country virtually almost every yes, day. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. just what you probably can't tell all the st- all the stories, but no, what was that like? Well, you sort of answered your own question in one way, <laughs> where part of the reason I've lived on the land and I live inland, a because I like the interior of Australia. We have a beautiful coastline in Australia, and we have beautiful cities. But I think our inland is amazing too in Australia, mm. and I think if we diversified more as a country and moved inland, we'd be big, bigger, and better country actually. Mm. But anyway, I won't get into that. Um, I was going to say that I think that for me, living out of a suitcase and living out of concrete boxes in hotels and running around in things that went at various speeds for so long, I suddenly went, I've had enough of this and I just want to block a dirt and sit and think clearly about everything. And it's yeah. been a, a wonderful thing in my life and for my family, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it, perhaps a, the perfect illustration of, of just that crazy whirlwind life that you led back then. I love the story about the 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 creation of the single "Need You Tonight," um, right? From from Kick. <laughs> Talk us through that story because that just sounds again okay. kind of made up. <laughs> no, 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 this actually happened. I know, I believe it. <clears throat> well, 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 I'll try to make it brief. But yeah. basically, we'd had lot, already had top forty hits, yeah, uh, in excess uh, in in various countries and some big ones too. But the biggest hit that we'd had most recently before Kick was what you need. And I remember getting a call from our manager at the time, Chris Murphy, who sadly just passed away very recently. Um, and he called me at home and he said, aren't you excited? You've got a top five hit in the US. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. And I said, thank you, and put down the phone. But I felt really uneasy about it. And I thought, why do I feel strange about this? And then I called Michael and I said, how do you feel about it? And he said, I feel strange about it too. And it suddenly hit both of us. Is this the pinnacle of our career? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, is this the best we're going to ever do? You know, is, is this the moment, mm. you know? And we felt the pressure coming on with the next album, which became Kick, you see. And then so the writing of Kick, including Need You Tonight, to answer your question, all became extremely important. Mm. And so 
we broke it into two sections of songwriting for Michael and I because we wrote the ho- the whole Kick album, the two of us by ourselves, and uh, the pressure came on by everybody, and I mean everybody, uh, re- you know, record labels around the world or whatever, um, and. So we broke it in two sections. Well, the second section, I think it was the second section, I, I called a cab to take me to the airport to go meet Michael in Hong Kong where he was living and we were going to write together on the second group of songwriting sessions. Yeah. Well, the cab turns up and in between the time I called the cab and when the cab's arriving, I, I started writing the music of Needs Tonight and the idea for it and all the bass line and riffs and everything. And I, and I programmed the drum machine and I was going... Hang on a minute. Um, this sounds really good as I'm doing it, you know. And I f- suddenly felt really uneasy, and I thought this bloke's going to turn up, isn't he? I'm in the middle of this, right? <laughs> and he, and he, you know, he's a cabbie. He doesn't want to know about what I'm doing, you know. He, he keeps just looking wants at me. His fare. Yeah, he's like, come on, pal, get in the car, hurry up, will you? Yeah. And I'm going, can you just wait a minute? And he's going, look, I've got a guy. And I'm like, please, please, just stay right there, okay? And I was running back and forwards between the cab, literally writing this song. And I put it down on a cassette back in those days, real old school stuff, and off a tape recorder, a multi-track tape recorder, and then eventually grabbed that. Literally, I didn't even know what clothes I had. Mm. Just grabbed my passport and jumped in the cab, went to the airport, flew the nine hours or whatever it was across to Hong Kong, got out the other end, uh, went to the Watson Cedar Estate where Michael was sitting with a recording engineer. And he goes, what are you doing? And I said, I've been doing this. And I played him different songs I had, including Need You Tonight, although it became Need You Tonight. And he goes, what's that? And I said, I just wrote that literally before I got on the cab. And he said, give me a minute. He got a pen and paper and he scribbled down the lyric and he sung that straight into a microphone. I'm not making that up. Wow. Crazy. Crazy. When the magic happens, eh? And inspiration (laughs) strikes. Yeah, that's right. And all those experiences I take as a writer now – into what I'm doing in my solo country music world that I'm in now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll get into more of that right after we take uh, another break. Andrew Farris is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the, the inspiring story uh, of Andrew Farris, a uh, Perth-born musician who went on to uh, play a pivotal role in uh, one of the most legendary Australian acts of all time in, in Excess. Uh, Andrew, we could be here for days going through all the uh, adventures uh, in, in Excess, but, but tell me what it was like when you were playing in those massive stadiums to tens of thousands of screaming fans. I, I, I can only imagine the buzz. Yeah, well, it's sort of it. We were a slow burn in that sense as a band. You know, we ended up working in fifty-two countries, and you know, we, I think what kept us together is having faith in what we were doing, but also because, in a weird way, fortunately for us, we hadn't become as big as some other bands were in Australia at that point. You know. Before then, we weren't the biggest band in Australia or by any means. Mm. And so when we started touring internationally, that was actually really healthy for us because we didn't have great expectations that there should be people, massive amounts of people in an audience wherever we'd go to a country for the first time and they wouldn't necessarily, you know, uh, throw accolades at us or they didn't even care sometimes. Yep. But because we kept going back again and again and again and again and we didn't give up, 
eventually we broke through and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And that's the bit we didn't, it snowballed <laughs> and we didn't see that coming. Yeah. And we were a bit cynical about it almost at first. We're like, we used to just make jokes about it, mm. you know, to each other. And you're like, are we crazy? What are we doing out here? You know, mm. you'd spend six months on tour living out of a suitcase and you go home and your girlfriend's left you and her life's changed and... You know, you you can kicked out of your, your, the place because you didn't, you know, because you didn't look after it properly or something. And but we kept on doing it, and I think that that I don't know that tenacity that we had. I give to the other guys in excess. We're, yeah, we were we were a, a pretty tight knit bunch. Mm. You know, mm. which I suppose means it just must have hit you like an absolute freight train when you lost your uh, iconic front man in in Michael Hutchins in nineteen ninety seven. Um, do you still reflect on? His passing, I know there's been a few years come and go since, but is he still fairly present in your mind? Sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've in my uh, home studio on the farm I live at, I have a photo that was taken, a black and white photo, before we became successful of just the six of us. We're just covered in sweat and yep. holding big jugs of ice water. It must have been hot in the gig we played. And that's my favourite photo of us. Yeah. Because it's in when we, before we really became very successful, I like that picture. Yeah. And, but I think, I like to think of Michael as I get on in years, uh, just as with affection and I respect and that I, I miss him as a friend more than anything. I like to remember the happy, funny, yeah. crazy times we shared together. Yeah. I don't remember the sad things so much anymore. I don't like to think about that. Um, it's not necessary, really. I don't no. dwell on it. No. no. Yeah, your legacy lives on. Um, let's fast forward now to the present. Uh, and we're actually going to hear now your latest track from your new album, uh, the second single, single from your self-titled album. Give us a bit of an intro to this one, Andrew. This is Run, Baby, Run we're going to hear. Sure. Uh, this is my latest single. It's called Run, Baby, Run. And it's about freedom and feeling that you have liberty and a place to go to and keep your eyes fixed where the trail meets the sky. All right. A million miles an hour Flying to the sun Chasing down forever Run, baby, run
That is Run Baby Run, the second single to be released from Andrew Farris's new solo self-titled record. Um, Andrew, just before we go into the, the, the dates, I'm curious to know how you balance your, your days there on the property because I imagine farming life is a very pragmatic life. You've got animals to feed, crops to look after, <laughs> and yet you've got this very creative outlet as well. Um, yeah, well, how do, you, pro- how do you balance the two? Well, mate, it's priorities, you know. Like, and, and what takes priority? Well, <laughs> well, for example, you know, as people would know that live out in the land or in the bush, you know, if a branch falls through your, your fence and you've got, say, you know, a couple of bulls and you don't want to have them with a, over a certain herd of cows and you've got to fix it. Yeah. You know, it's not going to go away. So drop the guitar, fix the fence. Sure. And you grab a chain, put it in the back of the tractor, you drag the tree out of the way, you chop it up with a chainsaw, you fix the fence, you get back on with it again. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do. Yeah. What, first one, then the other. Um, congratulations on your new album and uh, pleased to say that we're going to see you over here in the West as you tour that album around the country. Have you got the details for us for when you're going to appear over here in the West? Yes, mate, I do. On Friday, 21st of May at Frio Social in Fremantle, obviously, and on Saturday, 22nd of May at the Charles Hotel in North Perth, WA. And believe it or not, the Farris Brothers used to play in the Charles Hotel. So I, that was a while ago now. But, yeah, no, I'm really excited about it. And I've got an awesome band of country musicians playing with me. And they're crazy enough to join me to do it. And uh, But they're an awesome band. And I think you'll enjoy it. So please bring your mates and friends. And can I mention some of my other dates I'm doing as well? Go for yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you. And... Uh, April 9th, actually, my tour officially kicks off at the Royal Hotel in Queanbeyan. Uh, uh, Saturday the 10th of April is at Heritage Hotel in Bulli. Uh, Friday the 16th is at Lazotte's in Newcastle. Saturday the 17th of uh, April is in Manly Leagues Club in Manly. Uh, Friday 23rd of April is at Pado RSL, right here in, in Sydney, where I'm talking to you from. And Saturday 24th is uh, the Brass Monkey in Cronulla. And on May, uh, Friday the 8th, is the Thornbury Theatre in, in Victoria, which I'm really excited about. And Friday as well, Friday 14th is Night Quarter, Sunshine Coast. Uh, Saturday the 15th at Fitzy's in Logan Homes. Sunday the 16th at the Wallaby Hotel, Mudry Bar. And then uh, after Frio Social and the Charles Hotel in Perth, I play Friday 28th at the Gov and then I go home. Beautiful. You'll be uh, ready for a rest. There might be fences to mend by then too. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. I'm sure we've only scratched the surface. So we look forward to uh, hearing more of your album and seeing you here in the flesh uh, in May. Well, mate, come along to the shows and we'll see you there. Beautiful. Might get you in a chicken suit maybe at some point. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Sensational. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another inspiring story. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.